0: Amen. Please take your seats. Please, if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Amos, again, in chapter 2. i I'm going to begin our sermon this evening with a prayer from John Calvin, and we'll end it with another prayer of his that he prayed as he was preaching through these, this portion of Scripture in his, in his congregation in Geneva in the 16th century. Let's pray together. Grant, Almighty God, that since we have seen so grievous punishments formerly executed on unbelievers who have never tasted of the pure knowledge of Thy word, grant that we may be warmed by their example so as to abstain from all wickedness and to continue in pure obedience to Thy word. And that as Thou hast made known to us that Thou hatest all those superstitions and Deprivations by which we turn aside from thy word O grant That we may ever be attentive to that rule Which has been prescribed to us by thee in the law As well as in the prophets and in the gospel So that we may constantly abide in thy precepts And be wholly dependent on the words of thy mouth And never turn aside either to the right hand or to the left But to glorify thy name as thou hast commanded us, by offering to thee a true, sincere, and spiritual worship through Christ our Lord. Amen. It's interesting reading Calvin's prayers. There. They always have the same form. He always begins with, grant Almighty God. And then he'll have an argument um, with God. Grant that because you've said this, 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 this in the past, that you would therefore then grant, O God, this request. And it's a, it's a great example, and he always prayed the same way and in the same form, but always with different arguments, and it's wonderful. Let's pick up the reading. We're going to actually read chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, and then we'll drop down to chapter 2, verse uh, 6. This is the word of God. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, when he, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of the Carmel withers. And then there are seven oracles against Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and the Ammonites and Moab and then Judah. And now the eighth oracle in verse 6, chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl, so so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets, and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place, as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain its strength. Nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of God endures forever. It is desirable for every good preacher to know when to stop. It's also a good thing if he knows when to start. I was in my study this afternoon and was lost in wonder, love and praise. I looked at my watch, it was 5.32. And uh, I had to beat a history retreat from the study here again. I apologize for being late. You've got to know when to start and also when to stop. I heard a story recently of a Puritan minister. He preached a very lengthy sermon in the morning during which he said "Seventeenthly." Well, in the afternoon, his wife must have chastised him because he came back in the evening and said, looking at all those points in the morning of my congregation, I have decided this evening in my sermon, for your good, that my sermon will be pointless. Well, Amos stands up this evening with an eighth point, an eighth three, which wasn't the done thing. He had seven points, and remember he's a southerner up in Yankeedom speaking to Israel, and he comes with a seven-point sermon uh, to these pagan nations, and climaxes, so his audience in Israel thought, with their unruly, self-righteous little brother down in the south, and condemns them. And they were packing up their Bibles, closing their hymn books, and about to get up and, and enjoy the benediction, I suppose when Amos leans over the pulpit and says, Eighthly, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. An eighth point, every good Presbyterian sermon has three points, all beginning with P, and every good Jewish sermon has seven points, the perfect number, and Amos comes in with an eighthly, for Israel. And in his, this eighth sermon, we learn that there are he has two points really in this last sermon for Israel. And the first point is there is no partiality with God. And secondly, there is no escaping God. First of all, there is no partiality with God. Israel had been living like the world, the world that had this self-centered disregard for the poor and the needy and committed all kinds of oppressive, brutal war crimes, threshing their enemies with implements of iron and cutting open um, the pregnant ladies and so forth. Um, Well, God comes to Israel here in this eighth point and says, in a sense, if you live like the world, You'll be judged like the world. But unlike the world that had only broken the law of conscience, Israel had not only broken the law of God, but also despised his grace and walked away from it. And Amos's point this evening essentially is, to whom much has been given, much will be expected. It's, It's really an Old Testament echo of Paul's point to the Jews in Romans 2. Remember Paul's preaching to the church in Rome. And there was a division in the Church of Rome in AD 49. Claudius drove all the Jews out of Rome. All the Jewish Christians had to leave too. And so they left the church. And when they came back, it had been overtaken by a majority of Gentiles. And they were sucking heads of craw- crawfish and low-country boys and other kind of things that really offended the Jews. And there was a great division in the church. And so Paul writes, and one of the reasons he writes to Rome is, is to get money so he can go to Spain and preach the gospel. But he also writes, you remember, to try and heal the divisions in uh, the church. And that makes then perfect sense of why he's constantly speaking to the, to the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember, he begins chapter 1 of Romans talking about the Gentile sins, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. It's plain in the heavens, written in the stars, that God is there. He's a creator. And he has spoken to us, even the darkest, most benighted pagan has received the word of God in creation and the word of God in conscience. And these words should have, should have led them to worship and to give thanks. And instead, the, the Gentiles suppressed that truth, turned aside from it, and, and God gave them over in the hardness of their hearts to all manner of sexual depravity, including promiscuity homosexuality, lesbianism, and other kinds of unnatural behavior. And the Jews in the congregation were, I can imagine them, you know, um, rubbing their uh, hands with some glee that Paul is giving it to these Gentiles, who should be very thankful they've even got a part in the church at all. Then you remember chapter 2, Paul turns his attention from the Gentiles to the Jews and says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. You condemn the Gentile sexual immorality, but you use pornography. That kind of argument, you can imagine him saying it. And Paul says, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Do you think this, O man? You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? All of the grace you have received as a Jews over the years was designed by God to lead you to repentance. But he says, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. For there is no partiality with God. The, The gospel comes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the judgment comes to the Jew first and also to the Greek as well. And so this southern boy from Judah takes up his prophetic mantle and unleashes a tirade of rebuke against Israel for their sins. Just like the rest of the world, God has been watching these Israeli sins pile up. And the rest of the world got three transgressions and for four, which isn't literal, God gave them one, two, three, and then four strikes are out. But it's a prophetic metaphor. There are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. It's a list that's kind of filling up, like a bath filling up, like the iniquity of the Amorites not yet being full. And eventually it does become full, and the time for patient watching comes to an end, and the time for judgmental talking is about to begin, and Amos says, Thus says Yahweh, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Well, what are the sins that God points out in Israel? And there are really three. You can put them in three baskets, you might say. The first is social injustice. Secondly, sexual immorality. And thirdly, spiritual ingratitude. The S's and the S's. Yes. First of all, Paul, or God, Amos, and God through Amos, points out their social injustice. Uh, Verse 6, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Stop there. So, What's going on here? Well, one of two things, either it's possible on the computer are divided, but it's the same family of sins, that uh, in the law court, it is no longer a case of who has the right cause, but it's a case of who has the most money, right? And so when you come before the judge, there's some rich Jew and a poor Jew, and they're arguing their case. And it's plain, the poor Jew is right, but the rich Jew has oiled the palm of the judge with silver, and he bends justice away from truth that's one possible explanation another possible explanation which i favor is that uh, these people are selling the righteous poor that um, this poor man owes the rich man a debt and it's a great debt silver money and he's unable to pay and the poor man, like the parable of the unforgiving servant in Jesus' time, is begging for mercy, begging for more time. And the rich man, no, he just drops the hammer on the man and uh, sells him into slavery for silver. He hardens his heart to the need of his brother and shows him no mercy whatsoever. And that is always the case. Such hardness tends to grow. It never diminishes. When you harden your heart to God, it never your sin never diminishes, it always increases. You need to bear that in mind. That's an eternal principle. You're, 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 you never stand still in your Christian faith. You either are growing or you're decreasing. You're either getting better or getting worse. And these Jews, they begin selling, the, selling, un, un, selling a man to slavery because he owes him a bag of silver. But before long, he'll sell a man into slavery because he owes him two Birkenstock sandals are expensive, hundred bucks, you know. So, um, and even more now with um, inflation. So there's no concern, no mercy. Calvin says about that in his commentary, when once men begin to turn aside from the right course, they abandon themselves to evil without any shame. When an attempt is first made to draw aside a man that is just and upright and free from what is corrupt, um, he is not immediately overcome though a great price may be offered to him he will yet stand firm but once he has sold his integrity for 10 pieces of gold he may afterward be easily bought as is the case usually with woman woman while she is pure cannot be easily drawn away from her conjugal fidelity she may yet be corrupted by a great price but once she's corrupted she will afterwards prostitute herself so that she may be bought for a crust of bread. The same is the case with judges. They then who are at first covet silver, that is, who cannot be corrupted except by a rich and fat bribe, will afterwards barter their integrity for the meanest reward. There's no shame anymore remaining in them. This is what the prophet points out in these words that they sold the just for silver, that is, that they sold him for a high price, and then that they were corrupted by the meanest gift, that if one offered them a pair of sandals, they would be ready without any blush of shame to receive such a bribe. How has sin gained ground in your heart this evening? Maybe it used to take a a great temptation to, to cause you to stumble, but now just a little... Temptation is enough. Sin is never, sin's hold upon us is never um, content with equality. It wants to take over our whole heart and bring us into full domination. So the first sin then was social injustice, and it's a it's a constant reminder to us. God cares about how we treat. The little people of this world, where there are no little people who bear his image. And that should concern us. It should concern um, you and I when we walk past beggars in the street. And I know there are reasons why we don't necessarily um, give every beggar lots of cash. You may be helping them, but are we concerned for them? Do we always think the worst of them? Are we always you know, jaded and cynical when we see them? Do we always think, oh, it must be their fault they fell into poverty? And, and do we forget the grace of God that has kept us from such degradation? How easily we can buy ourselves a new whatever, a new toy, um, a new accoutrement to wear. And we can always find money for it if we really want it, and how hard it is for us to to uh, have such liberality with others. But also, you brothers and sisters in this congregation, maybe an older brother, an older sister, and maybe you, you you bully your younger sibling because you can, and they're small, and and you can bully them and then threaten them into silence. And you think nobody sees, mummy doesn't know, daddy doesn't know, I don't get in trouble. You need to realise that the God of heaven sees. He sees how we treat. Little people, for there are no little people on this earth. There's no partiality with God. So social injustice. Secondly, sexual immorality. Verse 7b, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined this sexual immorality is unnatural a father and a son go into the same girl and they're lining up like um, parents and children to go into a ride at uh, Disneyland or Six Flags but they're not looking to ride a roller coaster and they go into the same girl. It's unnatural to property that a man and a son would have the same woman. It's amazing, though, how how many sons learn this sin from their fathers. How many many of my friends at school would take porn magazines from their father's secret stash? You have one man, not a member of my congregation, but a man in the town that I pastored in some time ago, not this town, who promised his son he would take him to a strip joint if he got good grades at school. Actually, it wasn't a strip joint. It was a restaurant where the women are famously underclothed. But nonetheless, um, nonetheless, uh, the, 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 the learned depravity that filters from father to son, and it's here in this text, unnatural, it's unrestrained, they lay themselves down beside every altar. Um, it, was, it, it was part of the religious custom in those days. It was part of the, the, the custom in Cana that if you wanted the gods of Canaan to smile on your, um, your, your crops, right... And to cause rain to fall on the crops. You have to encourage them to get into action. And so the the religious services were essentially an orgy of godlessness and immorality. And essentially the hope was that as the gods looked down upon the pornographic show in the the church. um, They would get their act together and um, send fertility rains upon the earth. And that was exactly their theology ideas of consequences and it was just a thing you did if you want to have a if you want to have a bumper harvest if this is one of the things you got to do it's unnatural unrestrained and it was also again unmerciful um, the garments taken on pledge you know if a poor mad o- man owed you money and he couldn't pay it well you could take his garment but only during the day, at night time, you had to give him the garment back, because that's all he had to cover himself, right? So uh, you could take his garment during the day as a pledge that he would pay you, and then at night time you give him the garment back again, and then the next morning he'd give you the garment back again. You'd take it and hold it in pledge until the full payment was made. But these men take that garment that they took from a poor man and are using it essentially um, as um, a bed in a two-bit motel so they can go and have sex with these prostitutes they're ill-gotten gains, and in the wine of those fines similarly they might go and the poor man couldn't pay so he take his wine and they use that wine to fuel their debauchery and God sees it it's unnatural it's unrestrained it's unmerciful but it's not inconsequential As is always the case with our sin, it's not so much the sin we commit against one another. That's the greatest offense. The greatest offense is the sin we commit against God. You see that there? A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. The the unholy nations all around watched Israel do this. Israel, whose whose being was connected to the holiness of God, and they thought, well, if the people are like that, their God must also be like that as well. And it profaned, it dragged God's holy name through the mud. That's Paul's words, remember to uh, the Corinthians. And he said essentially, you can't check your union with Christ at the door of the brothel. You know, Wyatt Earp would make men, I'm told, check in their firearms uh, at the sheriff's office in Dodge City before they'd go out for a night on the town. You check in your firearms and you go and have fun at the saloon. It would stop the shooting. Well, you can't do that with Christ. You can't check your union with Christ at the door of the brothel and go in as a private person by yourself and have sex with a prostitute. Paul says to the Church of Corinthian, you bring Christ in there with you. Your sexual organs are Christ's sexual organs, and you're joining yourself to that girl, and you're joining Christ to that girl. Your eyes are Christ's eyes. Your ears are Christ's ears. And how have you polluted the the, the holy name of Christ before the angels and demons licking their chops and rubbing their hands with glee as our ideas have consequences? And we profane the name of God. And it bothers God greatly. It's amazing how often uh, our sexual proclivities reveal our true theology. When it talks about the list of the flesh in the New Testament, it's always sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality that head the list. How we can how we respond to our sexual urges, how we steward our sexual energy, is always a testimony of whether we know God or whether we don't. As Paul says to the Thessalonians, this is the will of God your sanctification, and that is that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, his own body in sanctification and honor, not in the lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. What we do with our sexual urges reveals whether or not we know God or whether we don't. Whether we're walking with him in the light or walking against him in the darkness. But if you say that you know God and walk in the darkness, men, we did this on Friday, Friday morning. If we say that we know God and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, truly the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. Truly we are we fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from each, from all sin. God takes sexual immorality very seriously. It reveals what are the true priorities of our heart. Are you guarding your heart against that? Are you guarding your heart against every slippery path into sexual immorality? You, you might not be going to um, some pornographic website, but are you going to the search place in um, Instagram or Facebook and and allowing the devil to take you by salami tactics, just one thin slice at a time, as you go from bad to worse and worse still? Thomas Watson said. He that will dally in the occasions to sin will in due time dally in the sin. So there's social injustice, there's sexual immorality, and lastly, there's spiritual ingratitude. These weren't the acts of pagans. These were the acts and the actions of the redeemed Their sin is against the God of their redemption, the God of Exodus. And in verse 9 to the end of the chapter, you'll see the word I, and it's very emphatic in the Hebrew. Yet it was I myself who destroyed the Amorite before them. Why the Amorite? Well, the Amorite was the very reason for the judgment of God upon Canaan. Remember in Genesis 15, I think it's verse 16, Paul, God says, I'm going to delay 400 years. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. God was waiting patiently, hoping against hope, taking no pleasure in the death of the wicked that these Amorites would repent, but they never did. And he's waiting until their sin reaches the top of the bath, and then he is going to act in judgment. God isn't hasty. He's not quick off the mark. His patience is legendary but not eternal. God's love has a heaven and his wrath a hell to expend themselves to all eternity, Thomas Watson said, but his patience has a brief lived earth. Are you sporting with God's patience this evening? Their sin then is against a God who had conquered unconquerable enemies, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars, these tall, massive trees like the Californian redwoods. And you were as strong as oaks. And God destroyed them, root and branch. I destroyed the fruit above and the roots beneath. He wiped them out. These were enemies Israel could never have conquered. We were like grasshoppers in their sight, the spies said. We could never have beaten this enemy. And God wiped them out, root and branch, before Israel. All that was forgotten, though. Their sin is also against the God who had broken not just unconquerable enemies, but he had broken an inescapable bondage. Verse 10, also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness with great patience as they sinned and grumbled against him, but he bore with them and carried them as a man father carries his son who fears him in his arm, little toddler, and God carried them. As a shepherd carries a lamb in his bosom, a father carrying a son, God carried Israel through the wilderness to possess again the land of the Amorite. It was the sin against the God who had conquered unconquerable enemies, who had broken inescapable bondage, and who had given undeniable light. Good words and a good example. And I, verse 11, raised up some of your sons for prophets. And some of your young men for Nazarites. Prophets to give you the word of God and Nazarites to give you an example of consecration to God. These Nazarites who weren't even allowed to drink, not even were they not allowed to drink wine, that's got nothing to do with alcohol being bad, the sign of their absolute consecration to God. They couldn't even eat raisins or grapes, even the fruit of the, of the, of the, of the wine was uh, forbidden them. They couldn't touch a corpse. and Samson was an Nazarite, remember, and he breaks all of those vows. God gave them light in word and light in deed from their, from their own children. And it was undeniable. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Undeniable light. How did Israel respond? Verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine you made them defile their consecration and you commanded the prophets saying you shall not prophesy I was listening to a fantastic lecture by Ian Hamilton uh, a mentor of mine from some years ago who was a pastor in Cambridge he's also a pastor in the Church of Scotland in, in Scotland not surprisingly and um, He watched that church go into um, disarray as they, first of all, ordained women to the gospel ministry. And he warned them, when you do that, it'll only only be a few years before you you, you ordain homosexuals to the um, uh, ministry. They will never do that. The Bible says you can't ordain homosexuals to gospel ministry he said, well, the Bible also says you shan't ordain woman to gospel ministry. And if you deny the Bible there, you'll buy, deny the Bible everywhere. He talks about it. And the, the, the saddest thing, though, is really it's well worth your time. Go to the Gospel Reformation Network on YouTube and recent com- conference in Birmingham in Hamilton. You'll find it. It's well worth an hour of your time listening to it. He, he talks about how the Church of Scotland slipped from its early years of faithfulness under John Knox through various downgrade controversies into uh, downright heresy and denying the gospel but what's saddest of all is how good men hung on that into that church year after year after year and they resolved not to rock the boat and he said you know in, in the Church of Scotland you can say you can be anything you can be a high Calvinist you can preach anything you want as long as you don't preach against um, the particular sins of people as long as you don't mess with baptism and the Lord's Supper he went to a church in in New Mills in Scotland it was New Mills in Scotland he pastored for a long time and the, the, the previous minister would baptize anyone with a pulse if it moved he'd baptize you and there was like 400 baptisms in the year before Ian went there as a pastor the year after he went there were four baptisms and those were baptisms of charity he said and then he went to this man's house and this was in the 80s maybe the 70s and there was a man, and he said, I haven't seen you at church. He goes, oh, no. He said, I don't go to the Kirk. I'm a member, of course, but I, 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 I don't go to the Kirk. Um, but I was baptized into the Kirk, and I was married in the Kirk, and I'll be buried in the Kirk, the man said. And Ian said to him, when was the last time you attended the Kirk? Oh, he said, um, a while ago. When? 1942, mm, he said. And Ian looked at him and said, I'll bury you, okay, sir. But you'll not be a member of the kirk anymore. Unless you repent. And that was the unforgivable sin, to deal with the membership of the church and to, to actually take God's word seriously. And that's what's going on here. You can point out the sins out there, but don't dare point out the sins in here. Um. Early in my ministry, I pastored a church and um, when I went, this church was famous for loving, hard preaching. Um, Al Martin and many other hard preaching men would go and they'd preach and thunder against the wrath and judgment. And people loved it. But as I I think I told you before, there's there's a difference between a drive-by shooting and an execution. When the visiting preacher comes in and thunders against gossip... Well, the gossip, you know, Mrs. Jones sitting in the front row, name made up entirely. Um, Mrs. Jones, Gertie Jones in the front row, she's the gossip of the town. Everyone knows it. Her coffee's only sweet if someone's condemned over it. And Pastor Martin thunders against gossip and she feels really convicted. He doesn't know her. It's a drive-by shooting. You know, if someone's driving by and you're sitting in McAllister's and you get shot as they're shooting some drug dealer from another gang and you get hit hit in the, in the crossfire and it's painful and, but you don't take it so personally because they didn't mean to kill you right and you go to the hospital and you, you know it's bad inconvenient and so forth but it was a drive-by shooting but when a pastor gets down from the pulpit and walks across with his 44 magnum cocks it and puts it to the head of Gertie Jones and pulls the trigger that's not a drive-by shooting that's an execution and she takes that very personally indeed and these people are saying, "You shall not prophesy against our sin." That's what they're saying to their sons. They hit the light and don't come to the light for fear that they might be exposed. And you can imagine the excuse: "You're our son. We know you, you little squirt. We cleaned your diaper and we wiped your nose as a child. Here, you tell us what's wrong with our lives." And The longer you know me, and even the longer you know Kyle, you'll see our faults. You'll know that we're sinners too. And it's easy to say, well, who's he to tell me how to live my life? If I was speaking in my own name, I would agree with you entirely. But I'm not speaking in my name, and neither is Kyle. We're speaking to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts. So there's no partiality with God. He comes after his people because of their social injustice, their hardness of heart, their spiritual or their sexual immorality and their spiritual ingratitude. God had blessed them in these very physical ways. And then in the third place, there is no escaping God. The God of grace becomes the God of judgment. Verse 13, Behold, I, notice thee again, their salvation came completely from God, and so was their judgment. Behold, I will press you down in your place, as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain its strength. Nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. The picture is of inescapable judgment. Um, th- th- that's the theme. When you look at those verses and you stand back, the-, the overall image is an inability to escape from the coming judgment. So I will press down you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. What's the picture there? It's a picture of of a, a cart weighted down in a muddy field, and the wheels can't get traction. He's saying essentially it's like you running out to, to escape uh, the, the tsunami of judgment and your, your getaway car flat tires. And it's not just, you know, nails in the, in the tires. It's the hand of God pressing it down, preventing your escape. Speed and strength won't help you. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life he who handles the bow shall not stand. What's that mean? Well, they would use the archers. When an army was escaping, they would use the archers to cover their escape. And it was really essential that the archers would hold their line and fight to the last man to keep the enemy at a distance with their arrows so the rest of the enemy could escape. And God says, but when God is against you, true courage becomes impossible. And the archers, even these bravest of special forces soldiers, will turn tail and run and leave the rear of the retreating people of God exposed and vulnerable from behind. And even skill in battle. I said that bit. Yes, when you reject God as your savior, you reject your only hope of salvation and you will not be able to save yourself. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. The only hope of salvation has always been God. It was God who rescued Israel. Israel was never able to rescue herself. And if God is for us, who can be against us? But if the hand of God comes against us, none can save us. Now, in an illustration of that, uh, you know our church has been growing in recent years. It's been very—I think people come in and grow. And one of the temptations for pastors and elders is don't rock the boat, Um, especially in a time when you're building and need people to be giving. You don't want to be—you know—you don't want to uh, drive people away. And so it's so easy to look at a man and. You know, there are some people who are always more disciplinable than others. I pastored a church once, not this one, and there were, it was that way in the congregation. There were some people who were regarded as troublemakers, and, and nobody liked them, at least not in the session. And they had hair triggers just waiting to riddle these people. But there were other people, the spiritual Joneses who were wealthy and influential, the big givers, you, you, you daren't go near them. And that kind of thing will work but for a time. But you've got to pay the and God sees and God knows. And, and God uh, has a thousand ways of undoing us if the hand of God is against us. When God is against you, no one can be for you. Even your stoutest soldier, verse 16... He who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Here's a strong um, marine, and he's wearing, I don't know, not talking about cargo, of course, but, you know, 45 pounds of, of equipment, magazines, and all kinds of webbing and so forth, and weapons. But he's running away, but when you're carrying that much weight, it limits how fast you can run, and so he starts stripping off the ammunition, and the, and the webbing, and the rucksack, and the rifle, and... He, he still can't run fast enough. Off come the boots and the trousers and the and the shirt and everything, and even his tidy whities He's left running naked. Even even then, he can't escape. All he succeeds in doing is exposing his shamefulness, nakedness, like Adam in the garden, naked and ashamed. Reminds me of a story I heard once from. The first pastor in Yazoo, actually, when I was, there was a student who preached this story, but this woman he knew, true story, it says. And this woman had been out running, as some of you ladies do, and she got back to the house. She had been raining and she was muddy and covered in sweat and everything else. And, and so she goes into the house and takes off her shoes and, and, and she, she wants to go down to the basement uh, where the washer-dryer was to do all the washing. And um, she looks for the laundry basket it's full of dirty clothes. So she thinks, I'll just. She strips off all her clothes upstairs and puts them in the laundry basket. And just picks up the laundry basket, is carrying it downstairs, and um, naked as the day she was born. And as she's going down the stairs, she almost tips over her son's football helmet. and Sees it there and kind of bounces the basket. Reaches down and picks up the football helmet and thinks, Well, I can't put it in the basket. It was full of clothes. So she puts the helmet on her head and walks down into the basement. And she's there putting the washing into the basement and suddenly she hears, <coughs> behind her, she turns round and it was the electrician, her husband had let him in earlier in the day to do some work in the fuse box, didn't tell her and she was standing with only a, a football helmet to cover her shame. It was the wrong thing in the wrong place of course and entirely in, in, not up for the job But she was standing there just utterly ashamed. There's a lesson in there somewhere, I think, but the the illustration is, lest you forget it, um, these men didn't even have a football helmet to cover their shame. And you know, neither did Jesus. On the cross, the Son of God was stripped naked, and the Medieval painters graced the Savior for obvious reasons with a loincloth, but on the cross the Romans didn't even give them that. They were hung up naked and exposed. Before a watching world. But this is what sin is, and this is what sin does to people. There is no partiality with God, and there is no escaping God. And coming to church doesn't fix it. Having the right name Reformed Presbyterians doesn't fix it any more than having Israel as your name or Judah as your name doesn't fix it. Even going to the temple doesn't fix it. That was the Jews in Jeremiah's day. The temple of the Lord. God won't judge us. We've got Solomon's temple. You know, the only thing that can fix our sin and our shame is coming to God and fessing up and crying out for a just mercy. And in the hope that somehow someone will be big enough and good enough to bear the naked shame of who we are and what we have done as far as the East is from the West, from our sorry souls. And on the day of judgment, my brothers and sisters, my pulpit gown won't cover me, and your garments won't cover you, and there'll be no football helmet supplied to you. It'll either be the naked shame of who you are and what you have done, or it'll be the robes of Christ's righteousness. Those are the only two ways we'll appear before God in the day of judgment. And God has given us these books in the Old Testament to show us how seriously He takes sin. There is no partiality. You don't get a bye because you're His friend or His child or whatever it is. Because your father was righteous or a minister or godly or an elder or a deacon or whatever. It doesn't get you by. You only get by if you trust in the righteousness of another. But if God was so enraged with Israel who neglected the picture of salvation in a lamb, the Passover lamb, and in the physical blessings of being redeemed from physical bondage and being brought into the physical land of peace and plenty and paradise in the promised land, what will happen to you and me If we dare to appear before him, having neglected the much greater blessings of the reality. Not the blood of a lamb, but but a beast of nobler blood. The very son of God with the blood of Yahweh himself coursing through his veins. Do you see what's at stake, young people, older people, everybody here? Do you see what's at stake? Walking away from the gospel... And maybe some of you come to, to do that to get the, the smiles of men, which is a very real thing, wanting the smile of men at work or at school or at college or wherever. And you want the smiles of men to be thought of as cool by men. And so you walk away from Christ. You're ashamed of Christ, the man, for the smiles of mere men. That's a, that's a very real thing. The this, this frowns of mere men are terrible. For people to look at you and be ashamed of you. Now think about that. What would it not be like to have the frown of the God-man and his holy angels upon you? That you walked away from him and his astounding grace. That would be a, a mistake of monumental miscalculation don't you think so let's let's come to God and bring our broken sinful selfish hard cynical hearts to him our lustful envious covetous hearts to him and say Lord I need you to fix me from the inside cleanse me forgive me and break the power of counsel sin oh God and be of sin the double cure cleanse me of its guilt and power And if you'll do that this evening, it'll be done for you. If it were not so, Jesus would have told you. Let's pray together. O God, our Father in heaven, we come this evening and we ask you, O Lord, to have mercy upon us, O Lord. I lift up before you, O Lord, the prayer of your servant, long gone. Grant Almighty God. That as thou hast not only redeemed us by the blood of thine only begotten Son, but also guidest us during our earthly pilgrimage, and suppliest us with every spiritual need, O oh, grant that we may not be unmindful of so many favours, and turn away from thee and follow our sinful desires. But grant that we may continue bound to thy service, and never burden thee with our sins, but submit ourselves willingly to thee in true obedience that by glorifying thy name we may carry thee both in body and soul until thou at length gatherest us into that blessed kingdom which has been obtained for us by the blood of thine only Son. Amen.